0: Time travelers, and welcome back to another episode of Biblical Time Machine, your favorite Bible history podcast. Helen, we are historians. Well, you're a historian. I'm not going to claim to be a historian. <laughs> you are too. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I am to be honest. But this is a historical podcast, and we spend a lot of time, you know, talking about the, you know, the four Ws—the kind of who, what where when things happen we try to put dates on things and understand them a question that we don't often bring up is is why right Mm. why did things happen um in particular when we talk about the bible why did the bible happen Mm. why did people sit down and and write this book which is a combination of so many different you know literary genres there's like kind of Myth and poetry and and history, or at least purported to be history, prophecy, of course,
1: apocalypse,
0: and that's a hard because that's it seems like that would be impossible to answer to get into the heads of these people writing thousands of years ago. But guess what? We found somebody. <laughs> <laughs> we found somebody who has some very interesting ideas as to what they were thinking when they wrote the Hebrew Bible, what some people might know better as the Old Testament. How did this book come together? Not even how, but 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 why, oh. as I said. So, Jacob Wright. Uh, Jacob Wright is a professor of Hebrew Bible at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. And he wrote a crazy new book. Not crazy, because the ideas are nuts. But because I think it's kind of revolutionary in the way that he takes, you know, a lot of existing scholarship and presents it in a way for you know people like me who don't know everything about the bible presents it in a clear way but shows very a very new approach to understanding what this book is and why it was written so Helen we have a little a little giveaway for our listeners, don't we?
1: We do. It's really exciting, and and can I just say, Dave has been going on and on and on about this book. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave is really excited. I'm sure Dave is going to be wanting one of these books himself. But yeah, I uh,
0: might keep one for myself.
1: <laughs> you you've loved it, haven't you? You've really found it interesting. Um,
0: well, I read it. So I read it over you know the holiday break, and my poor family, who's all home, you know, from school uh, no and from escape. work. Every time. Every time they walk through the living room, I'm trying to explain something about you know <laughs> Nehemiah to them, and they're just like, "Dad, please stop talking to me about this." But it's true. I was, I was, my mind was sufficiently blown, and so I wanted to share this book with our readers. Of course, you can go out and buy the book, and I encourage you to do that. Again, the title: "Why the Bible Began: An Alternative History of of Scripture and Its Origins." But we also wanted to reward Ooh. our listeners with some free copies of the book. So Helen, tell our listeners how this giveaway is going to work.
1: Yeah, this is this is something a bit new for us, isn't it? So <laughs> if you join the Time Travelers Club through Patreon, which you can get to through the, the um episode description, there's a link to, to join up there. Mm-hmm. We are gonna give away one of the copies to the tenth new member. And the other two books are going to be given away in a general sort of draw. So um, so this is only to members of the Time Travellers Club, but three of you are going to be lucky.
0: Nice. So if you need more uh, motivation and incentives to support the show through the Time Travellers Club, this is one way that we want to give back with a, <laughs> with a copy of Jacob's book. In the meantime, while you're... Following that link and signing up for the Time Travelers Club, let's start our conversation with Jacob Wright about why the Bible began. Well, Jacob Wright, welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Well, thanks for having me, guys. All right. We are very excited to dive into your book Um, Before we do, like the the book is subtitled An Alternative History of Scripture and Its Origin. So I thought maybe it's useful to our listeners before we get into these alternative ideas, which are intriguing and fascinating. What are sort of the traditional standard explanations for, you know, why the Bible was written and why it has endured for a couple thousand years?
2: Oh, yeah. um, So that question, if you were to ask people, you'd get very different answers. Why does the Bible exist? Why do we have it? Where does it come from? And the, the default um, mode is to think in terms of, well, it's scripture. Religions need scriptures. <laughs> and um, this is a authoritative text of some sort. And that comes from our context of living in Protestant and Roman Catholic and Muslim and Jewish communities in which scriptures do definitely play a central role. But when we look at the ancient world, that wasn't the case. And um, texts were not central to religious practice. That's a place where sacrifices were made. Um, There might be consultation of some texts by the experts, those who were making sacrifices. They might have had their own code books, but they... No one lifted a text up, mm. like in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, where Ezra does that, and the people sc- scream out like at a rock concert. <laughs> <laughs> say we want to read that.
0: That's so a great that's
2: image. New. That's new. Yeah, I try to point, that, p- portray Ezra as a rock star in this. I think that's what the scribes were trying to do if they, could, if they were living in our time. That's how they would probably have made him. Because they are scribes who themselves want to, to have their text appreciated beyond their scribal chambers. Um, they appreciated literature, I think. They started understanding that these texts have a larger capacity than just communicating information in a kind of very technological way, that there's some kind of art and beauty in the reading, right? Remember, this is a time in the world in which only scribes could read and write. Mm. We're talking about one percent of the population, much probably much less than one percent. Mm-hmm. So they they had a craft like the crafts of uh, potter makers or metal workers. Now the scribal craft was a bit higher because it took more more years of learning, but it was just a technology of like making a vessel, making some metal, communicating over long distances, and so forth. So all of that is very new when a text that they have created for this technology becomes central to their society that explanation doesn't work does it of that the bible is just scripture and all religions need scripture
0: yeah well that's mm-hmm. something that that kind of surprised me in in your book was the idea that you know i assume that all religions have a central scripture that the reading that that's the kind of how religions work you have something that you all read through and and you get all of your information from, but you're saying Mm -hmm. this is unique to these kind of couple religions, you know, of the book. Uh, And so, yeah. How, how does the Bible, how unique is the Bible even in terms of world religions?
2: Yeah. Across the board text um, for the most part with a few exceptions, um, but for the most part, we're not central to religion until Judaism, which then produces Christianity and Islam and and that's where peoples mm-hmm. of the book emerge. Mm. There are these things but what I'm making a claim is that actually the Hebrew Bible is the first mm.
1: Mm. interesting so so would you say then that the Hebrew Bible is primarily a religious text or or is it something else?
2: I want to uh complicate that religious text or something else with the um with the understanding that it's not there's no such thing as a, there's no category that they have of yeah. scripture yet. yeah so they're inventing everything along the way as they're doing it and we come back and we describe and put nomenclature on it such as okay now the bible has moved from a text that is just a narrative and tells a story like the gilgamesh epic mm mm-hmm to a epic that also has divine laws implanted in it. Mm. And then at what level does then the whole text become sacred and scripture? And what, at what point would they start like mm. rethinking these categories? And we can, as you know, in both New Testament and Old Testament studies, the Hebrew Bible, all that, start to like map out those stages and and to, to use the title of Satlow's book, how the Bible became holy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you would have to think in terms of if some of the oldest narratives are just stories of heroes and, and like David, or if you have like some great stories of Abraham and Sarah, Hagar and all that, it's still narratives in which God is a character.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: the text doesn't become holy in itself until it becomes the repository of divine revelation. And that's the model of the prophetic text. The prophets say, thus hear the word of the Lord. Mm. And then what follows is a direct citation. So the text that bears those words is in some way holy. And when that happens in the case of Carrying over that prophetic model to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of Moses, where we have Exodus saying, Thus Yahweh spoke to the children of Israel. And then follows, I have brought you out of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's then now the repository of of like sacred words. And at some level, then one would have had to step back and say, These things are holy. My complicated Helen by saying, I want to complicate it by saying that probably texts were always holy to them, though. These scribes would have been writing, even if they had been writing about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar without any kind of divine revelation in it. um, It's their art. And and anybody painting a painting would say, that painting for me is holy. Do I revere (laughs) that? Do stay away from the easel, children. That is not to be touched. And so these are their texts. And they say there's a lot of meaning packed into these. These are this is my yeah this is a a thing that I've collaborated with many other people on, and these this is a a a a meeting point of wisdom, and that's what I'm also trying to show in this is that the Bible is a collaborative project where scribes collaborate consciously on producing a text that could be shared that they don't put their names on, Mm. and that they invent these identification figures that I call these figures like Abraham and Sarah and Hagar with whom communities and various members of the community could identify, shifting attention away from themselves as the authors to the product, to the text itself, and the characters that these texts display for their communities. I think this is wonderful stuff, and it's new. And yes, there were things being written in the ancient world with great stories of heroes and so forth. What makes this one really dramatic is it begins with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. It doesn't begin with David taking down Goliath. Mm. (laughs) It's not the Gilgamesh story where he rises up, he's the greatest of all, but he wants um, immortality. How do we get Mm. immortality? in the mm-hmm. search for immortality and all along the way. You know, that's the kind of, those we see that in the Greek world and in the European, all of that, all over the place. Very rarely, though, do we see something that begins with the lives of common folk struggling mm. to survive.
1: That whole scribal practice, too, of not putting your name in things is is so different to what you get sort of in the New Testament period, the Greco-Roman period, where, you know, you always put your name on things. You're proud of your work. But just, mm-hmm. just, just to think about, I mean, and I think that's really interesting that you start with just the ordinary people. and. and I mean, how 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 remarkable do you think it is that you know this this great world changing text emerges not from you know the centers of empire, not from Nineveh or or Persia or Alexandria or any of these places, but from this tiny tiny little place that is constantly conquered. I mean, is that part of what you want to say? Is that is that significant?
2: Yeah, I I think so. Um, I begin the book by telling the story of the discovery. Of the ancient near east and Mm -hmm. that discovery is a quote in quotation marks because of course these in egypt these monuments had have persisted throughout the millennia Mm -hmm. and local Mm -hmm. inhabitants would have had a strong connection to them Mm -hmm. the discovery is is then from a european perspective Mm -hmm. but that Mm -hmm. discovery category is important because what happens from the during the period of colonization and the colonial powers where they're going and they are establishing embassies throughout the ancient Near East, as they call it, or the Middle East. Um, They start digging and then they discover texts that go way back to empires like themselves, but way back millennia earlier, 5,000 years earlier. And they have to unpack that. And they do that over the course of the last two centuries in various ways by the archaeology and then the philology and understanding how these texts even work and and how their languages and all of that, the deciphering of these texts. Long history, but also really fascinating. I don't tell the whole part of it, but that raises the question. If these great empires, their libraries, were discovered at modern times, why is the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament that it spawns, as a comment, I would say the New Testament isn't a commentary on the Bible. That the I think you would agree with me that the New Testament authors understood the Old Testament to be the Bible.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So the Bible here is he. Why would it have um, survived and been transmitted when all these great libraries of, of Babylon, of the great Egyptian cities that conquered the world, the world? Why were they consigned to oblivion? Why did it take? at least two millennia, even if you're just counting very late, from the time of Jesus, let's say, to the to the, to the 18th, 19th century, for people to discover those texts. They didn't discover the civilizations, but they did discover the text, rediscover them. And that then raises the question, well, why would the Hebrew Bible have come to us on the margins of this civilization? And I don't really... Um, Know how to fully wrap my head around that, but in so many ways, I think it's because they live on the periphery. They're rethinking the nature of power. Hmm. Um, They are trying to say we we can't survive in a world with such powerful armies and technologies that we're never going to be able to get for ourselves. Hmm. However, we can survive if we do this plan B. All kingdoms rise and fall. That's the King David moment. Goliath actually will end up conquering David. It may begin with David taking down Goliath, but there's bigger Goliaths than Goliath, and they're going to take down (laughs) David's kingdom. So the scribes then ask themselves, what now? What do we do? Well, we can't be a bigger kingdom than the kingdoms of Babylon and Assyria. Even if we try to say David was as big as they, we don't have one now, and we'll never get one. Let's face that. Now, we can try to be some kind of liberationist movement where we're always trying to resist, and we see that, especially in the post-exilic period, where many liberation movements um, emerged that tried to take on the empire, and the biggest are the Maccabees, but there were groups before the Maccabees who uh, were pushing against the empire. But that's not what the biblical authors were doing. As a whole, the biblical authors... Um, don't include in their works the kind of Maccabean mentality of standing up, give me liberty or give me death kind of mentality. Mm. We have in the first book of Maccabees where Judas Maccabeus says, if we die, we will die a noble death. Nowhere in the Hebrew Bible do we have that. (laughs) What we have in the Hebrew Bible is, in contrast, Something, something like Jeremiah saying, bend your neck to the yoke of Babylon and let's live. It's better to live in bondage than to die in freedom. <laughs> and so this is a new mode. This is a plan B. This is a, a, a kind of, we can be a people even without a kingdom. And what makes a people powerful is not militaries, but a, a self understanding that we are to be a blessing to the world. Wow. That's what Abraham and Sarah would get at the very beginning. Go be a blessing. That inspires them and say, "Well, how do? What does it mean to be a people in the first place?" It's never been asked, and that's the kind of route I take in unpacking the Bible.
0: Yeah, no, our our listeners. I mean, so Jacob, we're we're giving away some copies of your book as part of uh as part of your appearance, and I want to remind people that if they subscribe, that they would have a chance to be in that drawing for the book. But that, to me, is kind of the thesis and the the heart of of your book, this idea that the Hebrew Bible came from this conquered people on the periphery out of the center of power, and that it was, in a way, an attempt through literature, through this amazing work, to to reinvent themselves, to give themselves a new identity, this idea of being a people rather than a kingdom. So, yeah, just tell us a little bit more about that
2: kind of overarching thesis. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I would um, lay it out most simply in this way. There were these two kingdoms. One was in the north, it's called Israel proper, or the northern kingdom. Um, it was also called Samaria, or that's where the Samaritans come from mm. in the New Testament. And then you have the southern kingdom called Judah. And that's where we get the name Jews, Judeans. So Judah in the south, and in Northern Kingdom. So these two kingdoms, I argue, never were one kingdom, and their populations don't go back to a common family as the biblical authors depicted happening. But um, that, that fact that they don't go back to one family as depicted in the biblical account raises the question, why would the biblical authors have claimed such? What are they trying to do? And then that takes me on a on a uh, research path of, I take the reader through how these two kingdoms were wrote, their rise and their fall, how they became powerful kingdoms themselves, but also how they were wiped out by the empires and how, what relationship did they actually have to each other. And I try to show that the Northern Kingdom is stronger and really held the Southern Kingdom under its uh, thumb until the Northern Kingdom was wiped out and the Southern Kingdom goes on to endure for another 130 years that's the time of hezekiah and josiah and then the southern kingdom is destroyed so you have two kingdoms that are connected how do they, they how do they start to see themselves as one people the first move is to say we were one kingdom we go back to a common kingdom that's when josiah the northern kingdom had been wiped out And Josiah is saying, back in the times of King David, my ancestor, it was our God, Yahweh, who said, you will be the king for all Israel. The northern kingdom has left that. You guys have sinned by departing from Jerusalem and the Davidic kingdom. Come back now. So this was the time where these texts are very much about Jerusalem and about the Davidic kingdom. Meanwhile, the northern kingdom has another kind of product, and that is among scribes who may have worked for these kings in Jerusalem, very professional scribes from the north who, um, once the kingdom was wiped out, they either went to work in other areas or they went to work for the empire or for the kings, let's say, in Jerusalem, like Josiah. But I imagine it happening this way, that in the evening when they have time for themselves, when they really are creating texts that... Um, for the long haul for a larger kind of political project what they're doing is saying no you know what makes us Israel what makes us a people is the salvation we had long before there's any king and it was from our bondage in Egypt and we can be a people now because what made us a people was not a king And they're imagining a form of political community that is not state based, not a kingdom based, not a country like the United States, but rather a people like Americans, if you will, or like the English in relation to the Scottish, those kinds of things in relation to a larger state um, kind of the United Kingdom kind of mentality. So the government, they're thinking beyond governmental power and they're trying to say, we can be a people without a kingdom because. It was our God who brought us out. And they refocus attention to Yahweh. So while in the south, the Davidic kings are saying, using Yahweh to support themselves, saying, Yahweh, Israel's God, your God, our God, chose our ancestor David to, in his line to be the king over all Israel, these uh, other authors are using Yahweh to say no, to to use Yahweh to replace the king, in fact, to say it was Yahweh who brought us out. We don't even need a king. Hmm. Hmm. And he can't be then uh, instrumentalized to support some kind of king whom we are serving here all day long. <laughs> That's how I imagine it. So these two these two elements give the Hebrew Bible its, its dual character. One is this focus on a people, family, becoming a people, and Exodus, and this other... It's David and power and the Messiah and the Messianic moment. And the Messiah will return and rebuild at one day. But when? Well, we don't know. Way back, sometimes in the way off in the future, not back, but in the future, that will happen. And the New Testament seizes upon that, those prophecies, and says, now this has been realized in the time of Jesus but for the hebrew bible and the jewish authors they the that separation of the kingdom moment the messianic moment the davidic thing from the present and saying it's sometime way off in the future it allows them to really refocus not on the stories of david and the kind of focus on that hero and salvation through that hero but rather on all of the common folk mm. And education, and learning to survive under imperial power, and learning to refocus attention to other kinds of ways of life, and to reinvent the hero.
1: I mean that that that's all really interesting. I, I think though I, I still don't quite understand why why these two groups, you know, why these two peoples? Because there's all sorts of other peoples in in this region, yeah. aren't there? How does how do these two get together and decide that they're going to share their, their their common stories?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you have Israel, the Northern Kingdom, during the time of the Omrides, the, the dynasty that really built the northern kingdom, Ahab, for example, Ahab and Jezebel. You have during their reigns a very strong relationship or at least a, a rivalry uh, competition with the kingdom of Moab, the Moabites, mm. where Ruth comes from, Ruth the Moabite. That's across the Jordan. And you can see how the Moabite kingdom had, had been under the um, control of Omri and Ahab, but then had liberated itself from them. And I'm basically arguing that that was the same thing with Jude in Israel. Mm-hmm. So the question is, why didn't Moab in Israel also form some kind of common biblical project? And Velhausen, Julius Velhausen, going way back to the early part of the 1900s, late 1800s, where he's writing um, really important work for biblical studies, both in Hebrew Bible and New Testament, he asked that same question: Why wasn't it just the Moabites? Why? Or he would ask, Why did the Moabites? The Israelites create something but like the Bible, but the Moabites did not. Mm. And for me, the relationship between Israel and Judah is this. it they, The Moabite kingdom and other kingdoms did not have the kind of control that Israel had over Judah. Israel really controlled Judah. And you can see this in the biblical text all the way through. When the kings of Israel come and say, we're going to go attack Edom, come with us. And the, in the from the <laughs> Judean perspective, the Judean kings say, okay, uh-huh. <laughs> we agree to come. But probably the historical fact is you're coming whether you like it or not. Hmm. You remember the story of Atalia or Athaliah? That's when the northern kingdom says, we are going to remove a Davidic din- dynasty from office and place one of our own, Atalia, this woman who fascinatingly gets into power in Judah. And so... There's a long history of Israel really holding Judah under its thumb, and and then Judah then breaking away from Israel when the Northern Kingdom gets destroyed, and saying, "Now we are the new Israel." And I tried to set that up to say that how many different kinds of communities, Christian community, but also all kinds of uh, political projects, imagine themselves as the new Israel.
1: Mm, mm.
0: Well, that that's that that's something I wanted to uh, to to dig into this sort of post-exile. So, like you said, the the Northern Kingdom destroyed by the Assyrians, hundred and something years later, Judah also destroyed. You know, brought into exile in Babylon. This very famous exile. The people they come back. They come back to Jerusalem. Maybe you could put us. You know, if we could hop in the time machine and travel to this moment. You know, we've talked a lot here about scribes and these kind of nameless scribes, but you've also said that there were scribes from, you know, from Israel, and there were scribes from Judah. Tell me about this moment when we believe, I, I think, that a lot of these texts were written in the post-exile period. You know, what were the intentions of the scribes, and if we place them in Judah, you know, what why would the, the Judean scribes have wanted to unite and create these this kind of continuous story the way that they did. Take us take us to that moment.
2: Nice question. Because where we left off was these two kingdoms, uh north and south, um, and the, the northern kingdom being conquered and the southern kingdom holding on for another another one hundred and thirty years. Um but the Bible would not have emerged if Judah had continued to be a kingdom and it hadn't been defeated. Mm-hmm. So Judah Uh, suffers the same fate that this northern kingdom had suffered and they start to learn from the northern kingdom's writings or at least the scribes from the erstwhile northern kingdom about what it means to be a people that project of peoplehood that i think the northern scribes scribes that who had had come from the, the north and had maybe served in the palace but were serving now in judah or elsewhere and are creating these texts um we know that they probably are not Judeans because, for example, in the Song of Deborah, they imagine a united nation of 10 tribes, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not with Judah. And um, and it's about unity. But that's we can see that there are scribes who were who thinking in terms of peoplehood from the north without Judah. So that the Judean project... Um, the Judean product is much more status, much more Davidic, much more messianic. That's where we get a lot of the psalms about Zion, about your servant, about the one who you've anointed, and all of that. That the prophecies have a lot of that, and so that's the Judea, That's the kind of imprimatur or the uh, hallmark of a Judean author, in a certain sense, is that it's very focused on Jerusalem. The palace, or at least the temple, and David, or a reunited Davidic dynasty, a, a reestablished Davidic dynasty. Um, so but what happens is even the southern kingdom is destroyed, so they have to then push that off into the future, as we mentioned, and they're also trying to start to learn how to get on the bandwagon with the northern scribes mm-hmm. in terms of... Okay, let's create stories like Ruth. The stories of Ruth is, she's a Judean from Bethlehem, one of the most important towns in the south. That's where David comes from, right? And from Bethlehem, Ruth's um, mother-in-law, Naomi, goes to Moab across, and it's a whole story of peoplehood in the most majestic way. It's it's really quite uh, a gift to humanity, this book. And it's about, it's coming from Judah, and it's taking Judean issues, but interpreting them through the lenses, let's say, of how the patriarchal stories, which probably emerged in the North in many ways, how they would um, do stories of peoplehood, mm. stories of Isaac finding a wife of Rebecca, and all of that just wonderful stuff like Jane Austen, and then <laughs> using it in. Ruth for a Judean question of like, what is our relationship to the Moabites? And how did a Moabite woman, Ruth, become the ancestress of King David and for Christians of Jesus? And so they're really moving beyond the state now, these Judean authors in the late period. And they're learning from the northern writings. And one of the scribes that we have, who we know by name, is the one whom... I handled it in my dissertation, and it's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not understood to be a scribe very much. He, Ezra is the one who's supposed to be a scribe. But, but in the case of Nehemiah, we actually have his writing. And in all other cases, even with Ezra, scholars dispute that. Did Jeremiah write anything? Well, Jeremiah actually claims he never writes anything. It's Baruch, his scribe, who writes things. Mm. So we hear about names of scribes throughout the biblical text, and we can collect a little bit about how they worked and lived, and I try to lay that out with comparative evidence. But uh, for all intents and purposes, we cannot really identify um, w- uh, like this text would have come from this kind of institution that was trying to make a case for why um, they should have power. So many of these texts are doing something that is just literature in the purest sense that is, what will be good for our community as a whole. Mm. When, um, and it's artistic work that comes from the north and is learned in the south, and we can see it developing all over the place. And Nehemiah, coming back to him, is one who's now trying to tell in his own memoir kind of style, the Nehemiah mem- memoirs, how he came to Jerusalem after serving in the palace in Persia, and then how he takes upon himself different kinds of tasks of rebuilding to get this community. So it's this kind of very... um politically focused, but not politically focused in the sense of, I want to reestablish the Davidic dynasty. I want to establish a palace. He's really thinking about what is good for us as a people. And that really starts to take on in Judah. And we have scribes doing that. And it's really remarkable to see. And, um, does that help at all? <laughs> it
1: does. <laughs> it must take a, a huge level of creativity then on the part of these scribes, because as you say, they've got all these different stories and they're sort of stitching them all together. And um, a, 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 how do you see the sort of the, the, the mechanics of all of that working?
2: Yeah, nice question. Um, I spend a lot of time. I'm known for being a German scholar in America. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and Is that I, good our, or bad? <laughs>
2: I think it's good. (laughs) Not everyone does, though. And um, no, I'm very proud to be a German scholar. Um, Spent a lot of time there and did all my studies. But what they mean by that is someone who does diachronic criticism. How do you get into a text and start looking for different language, different ruptures in the text, comparing with other manuscripts that we have, translations like the Septuagint, Mm -hmm. and trying to reconstruct how these texts grew and evolved, So I do a lot of that. And I, um, I share a confidence with a good many people, even as we disagree about the particulars, that that's possible, that, that we're not always sure exactly, but we can see like, this is a block of material about Saul and this is a block of material about David. And there are, um, some stories that are only about David and some about Saul and there are some about both. And the ones that were about both seem to be later, for various reasons, the ones that connect them are later. Ergo, maybe the Saul stories and maybe the David stories originally had nothing to do with each other. Now, that's a claim I'm making in a book, and there will be a lot of pushback to that, and there has been. I wrote a book that um, a lot of people wouldn't agree with, but then it's I think it can make a, um, a, a, a plausible claim for these things, uh, that there are different materials, that Moses... And um, the patriarchs are very different kinds of literature, that they emerge from separate bodies of texts and scribes. Um, and that Moses is is then later made into one of the descendants of Jacob's 12 sons and then brought together. And so this is German scholarship, but also American scholarship, and it doesn't have to be radical. It's not about trying to um, find out everything little tiny uh, addition to the text. But in general, we can start to say, these are how books of the prophets and the Psalms and how Proverbs came together and all this stuff. We can compare how, you know, just the internal evidence with how different genres of wisdom would have worked in the ancient Near East to come up with hypotheses of that this is how this came together. For me, um, that is... So exciting because it allows us to look at the question of if we look at the seams, why are they bringing these things together? Why do they want to connect an Abraham figure from the south with a Jacob figure from the north? Or why do they want to include a Song of Deborah that includes nothing from the south in it, but they still have it in their text? And by looking at how they're bringing these things together, we start to appreciate the larger vision that we can start to see that decisions are made that are similar in many respects, and there are some things that are never included, to go back to that Maccabean moment. Mm -hmm. You have some unity across the whole spectrum of the biblical corpus that a lot of our colleagues in biblical studies don't want to acknowledge. They want to say it's more of like a library of Israel's ancient Mm -hmm. texts, and I want to say, no, it's a very curated corpus Mm -hmm. of texts. Yeah. And a lot of things have been left out. Mm-hmm. And that Maccabean kind of text that we know there would have been long before Maccabees, these kinds of texts that say, give me liberty or give me death, that there would have been stories about those who died in service to their kingdom being commemorated. You know, what we don't have any of those. Hmm. There are no texts in the book of Joshua where they conquered the land. And, you know, we only had to leave, lose 35 people in this conquest. It's miraculous, only 35. But we're going to set up a monument for them, for these 35 who sacrificed their lives so that we could conquer this land. You know what? That text is not in Joshua.
1: <laughs> Do you think it was never written or or, or was it was it written and, and just fell I'm out of sure. favor?
2: I think there are many texts like that must have been written. Yeah. There's so many texts like that throughout the ancient Areas. Uh, yes, That's exactly. one are of the most important things of like l- political martyrdom. Yeah. Willingness of soldiers to die yeah. so that others may live. And it's removed completely from the Hebrew Bible. Oh. And I and um going back to the Israelite Judean kind of scribes who produced that. It's hard to say, but I would say it's probably comes from the kind of the more Northern mentality because the Judean Southern mentality was still about statehood so much. It was still about, and that's where the Jew, Judas, Judah Maccabees come from, Judah Maccabees comes from, um, in terms of reestablish now, reestablishing now a powerful kingdom in the South, that will then control the north in many other regions. And so you have that kind of give me liberty or give me death mentality that is very deeply anchored in Judean self-consciousness, which is at odds with this more northern consciousness of let's live to see another day, folks. Mm.
0: Well, something that I think strikes Readers, particularly if they're coming you know, primarily from a Christian context, if they read the New Testament more than the Old Testament, more than the Hebrew Bible, they go back and they look at the God of the Old Testament, and they're like, who is this guy? He seems to act sometimes sort of petty and cruel. He'll just kind of wipe people out for no good reason. Does Is that a byproduct of this editorial work that the scribes were doing? Did they need a character in yahweh that would help kind of explain how these uh these histories came together did they need the god and the machine kind of thing that was going to make it happen
2: it, or you know was that nice a nice that's a nice observation and uh question it shows that you've been thinking about that a lot yes it is uh this would not work without god in it it's not a political tractate and that is maybe to the liking of us as moderns peoplehood, democracy, new roles for women, but also religiously pure, plural, pluralistic. It's not pluralistic. This is a, a, a text that says, you shall have no other God before me. There's only one. Who is this, what's this God's name? Yahweh. That's our God. The Shema, which is so central to Judaism. O Israel, the Lord is our God, which is Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one the Lord is one that text is a strong affirmation that goes to the heart of the biblical project say we have one God so the so the project itself is sustained by an attempt to find some center of unity for the whole nation that is not fixated on a dynasty or on a temple or even on a place because Yahweh and Israel come together in the wilderness in that moment of liberation and they go on to form a partnership and that partnership is then a story of uh, a tumultuous, very often toxic relationship. <laughs> and in the prophets they you know like Hosea where Yahweh is depicted as repenting mm-hmm. of the violence he's inflicted on Israel mm-hmm. and saying, I'm never going to do that again. I'm gonna now not be called Baal, which is a the word for the God, but it also means husband. I'm not gonna be called it's a strong word for husband, which means Lord. Mm -hmm. You're gonna call me my man. And I'm gonna call you my woman. Like in the Song of Songs and that new relationship. And it's majestic. It it gives you goosebumps if you allow it to kind of look at how this relationship is being unpacked and how that relationship. Is the the foundation for a way of thinking beyond the state, beyond kings, and connecting all of our individual stories into a larger story, a, lo- a drama with our God and topsy turvy relationship, but one that it sustains us and um, and gives us hope. And yeah, I think that's I. By the way, that's what I want to write on now—a book on hope and <laughs> um, and and seeing your past as connected to other past in a community. That is so much so important for hope to be in community. You lose hope when you're isolated, often, right? But also to see your past as having a long history that that emerges. There's some kind of larger vision to it, and to and to move toward that. And to say, we take baby steps, but nevertheless, we are moving towards something. Um, that is all part of uh, allowing the deity to be the center of focus, the transcendent power, rather than any political institution or wrapping him up in in any way with one particular place or one particular um, institution, as I said. Does that make sense? Trying to separate um, it'd be like the flag in the United States or the Union Jack, or what have you. It is that's the point of unity. What is it? It's a flag. Can you love the flag? Well, in America, they do love the flag and all that kinds of stuff. But it's hard to. It's just a flag. It's, you have to somehow give it well, they, the, the biblical authors didn't use a flag, but in the place of the flag, they placed a deity. And that deity is can hold the nation in check and can say, You do not live up to my standards. Mm-hmm. And it's very different than the deification of the state that happens so often throughout history, in which what's right is what the state deigns to be right. Mm-hmm. And that kind of that separation of a deity who can choose this nation to be his people, but can also then reject it to. And can bring its end. That holds the nation, and kind of we need to be sure to keep the written Mm. code that was given to us that we all signed way back in Sinai about how we should be treating each other, how we should be doing A, B, Z, all over all these things. Otherwise, we could lose our nationhood, our status, our land, our honor, and all that. So, I think that's for me. The only question is how in the heck. They were they so creative mm. <laughs> and innovative and visionary. And I get so this is my tribute to these guys, these scribes. Some of them might have been women, mm. but it's a group of people who were just collaborating to do something new. And throughout history, we've seen that too. It's not all about power. People write stories because they're powerful for themselves and for their. <laughs> neighbors and it's not about trying to you know sell books or to um, create some kind of apology for a particular political uh, person or something it, it things can be done altruistically and I think the Bible uh, demonstrates that.
1: And the, the Hebrew Bible finishes in a strange way, doesn't it? I mean, it sort of almost peters out. You've got this sort of rupture between the people and God. And, um, you know, the covenant has broken. People have been disobedient. Um, but I think in your book, you, you sort of almost suggest that, that, that that's kind of the starting point, not the end. Um, is, is, is that what you want to say? That, that it's almost how did we get to this stage and, um, kind of explaining how how, the things that went before that
2: yeah um i would actually say that exactly that that um um, it's the end that asks the question what's the beginning right once we've reached that there is no going forward one starts to then say well how did it all begin Mm -hmm. and that's where the stories of the beginning start to, to really um evolve dramatically in this period as stories of like, well, what is a family? What is a people in terms of all of these different things in response to a situation in which we no longer have our families. We're no longer united in our land. We no longer have these kingdoms. Well, what was the decision to even have a kingdom in the first place? And that's how the text say, you know, it was kind of a sin against God to have this kingdom in the first place because mm. we rejected God as our king. Other texts say, no, it's, it's important, but they're battling with it, and they're trying to say, at one point in time, in the time of Samuel and Saul, we all insisted on having a king. And on a specific day, and it's dated in the text very precisely, this is when we all made that decision. Mm. So mm. With, why that's important to say, Kings have not always been with us. They are not what created us. We created them, and now they're gone. We still survive, and and that that moment to have that powerful political thinking in a moment of darkness, right when the stock market is at its lowest, to be buying stocks off of the place when there is no hope in the future, we are wiped out. This is not a community you want to be proud of anymore. To say, no, in this moment, this is when it all is going to begin again. We're going to have maybe not the, the salvation from, uh, from bondage as we had in the days of uh, the Exodus, but we have those days in our past, nevertheless. That's who we are. We may not get that liberation back, but look at this text. Look at the story of how we were liberated way back then. And people come together around a text. And that's when it starts evolving and new text and new ideas and new concepts for let's do a book of Ruth. Let's collect a bunch of songs around a book of Psalms. And it's, and it's not one person engineering the whole thing as, okay, we've lost something. Let's start something new. Let's put a committee together. These are artists coming together on their own learning from each other. And we probably can be confident that there were a lot of things that they said, no, we don't want that. That's not going to work. That's that's (laughs) like someone comes up with the idea. Let's all wear wear purple. We're all going to be a people of purple. I got a good idea. It's really going to give us an identity. And they thought about it for a few minutes. No, that law is going to get wiped out. (laughs) And you know, there had to be stuff like that because um, we find text number one, where where we see the editing going on, but also um, it's just such a collaborative effort to say, to ask ourselves, ask themselves, what works? What's going to be helpful for us? No, wearing purple is not going to be helpful. What's going to be helpful for us if we do, if we try to re-envision the way women contribute to our society, for example, right? We're going to start telling stories about the most formative moments in our history being moments in which, women and their lives were central Hmm. like with deborah deborah the song of deborah um she's the best judge and everyone it all goes downhill from there and she she operates in a different way too she's powerful like a mother bear but she's not about trying to create a name for herself and everybody else else after men are all about being powerful and creating a name for themselves (laughs) and um so they're reimagining these things at this at this time um and doing really innovative work on a number of fronts not least gender roles mm-hmm. and they're doing that because i think uh, i think artists have always done that through history and when people come together and really ask what's good for us that they start to converge because there are a lot of things that clearly are not good for us and people can agree on that <laughs>
0: oh. well well Jacob, we could talk to you all day about this. Instead of that, yeah. I encourage I encourage our listeners to go get his book. I really cannot recommend it highly enough. Again, the title is Why the Bible Began: An Alternative History of Scripture and Its Origins. And like, you know, Helen's last question referred to, it really kind of turns everything on its head. It makes you look at this text in a completely different way, not to appreciate it any less. I think as Jacob has explained, you could appreciate it even more and even in in deeper and different ways. There's a reason why this book has endured for thousands of years, because it it speaks to us (laughs) in a very special place from a people who went through very hard things. And I think as long as people continue going through hard things, they're going to rely on the truths that are in these texts. But Jacob, before we let you go... You know, we do have to uh, give you the honor of stepping into the time machine. So I hope you've thought about this. <laughs> if you had a chance to get inside our very expensive, pretty reliable time machine, where and when would you want to travel? What would you want to see?
2: Um, I wasn't prepared for this question. Oh, no. I'm thinking, like, <laughs> uh, I guess it should have been. But um, I would want to go back to... Um, Damn, I would want to go back probably to the days of Nehemiah because that is, uh, I've spent so much, so much time working on that text throughout my period of in in Germany and PhD work. I want to know, am I right about how I imagined it all? And that's, for me as a historian, that uh, takes precedence over, like going to someplace that's really wonderful um, because that curiosity has, has really the best of me.
0: So where am I mm. setting? Like what? What? What date am I punching in? When was it? Would be like
2: around four forty BC, not in, um, not in Greece, where many interesting things were happening in Athens at that time, but in Jerusalem. Put me there.
0: All right, we'll do it. <laughs> we'll do it. I'll send you an email when it's time. When it's your turn. But uh, until then, uh, thank you so much, Jacob. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, listeners. This has been another episode of Biblical Time Machine, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Wait, before you go, remember, we're giving away three copies of Jacob's book. All you have to do is become a member of the Time Travelers Club. The link is in the show description below. We're going to give one copy away to the 10th new subscriber. And for the other two books, we're going to do a drawing from among all members of the Time Travelers Club. So if you want to put your name in the running and you want to support our show, which we really appreciate, then become a member of the Time Travelers Club today. Good luck.